Hello, and welcome to episode 59 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which has a, an archive of about 110 episodes of 30-minute conversations with people from around the tennis world, so be sure to check that out if you have not yet done so. So here we are in a couple weeks into the clay season, and the biggest story in the tennis world is, weirdly enough, having to do with Justin Gimmelstab, who never made this many waves as a tennis player, but now that he is a violent and controversial tennis executive slash presenter, he's all over the news. We're going to talk about that. Um, we have plenty to say about that, as everyone else apparently does as well, but the tennis on the court's a little more important to me, so I want to start there. Uh, the biggest match of this week, so taking second in the new sweepstakes against Gimmelstab, was the Barcelona semifinal. Dominic Team knocking out Rafael Nadal, making the fourth year in a row that Team won a match against the King of Clay. And Carl, we saw last week Nadal lost to Fanini, now he lost to Team. These are two guys who've beaten him in the past, so. They're not shock defeats, but but they are definitely not what Rafa would have hoped for coming into these two tournaments that he's dominated so much in the past. So, I mean, should we start worrying about Rafa at this point? Is 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 the king like starting to be toppled off of his throne? I don't know. These thrones come and go. Like we were worried about Rafa four years ago when he had bad clay losses, including at the French Open and. He more than recovered to regain his his crown. So maybe this is another bad year for him on clay. I know he's four years older than he was at the time, so that makes it less likely that he would then come back. But there are two clay masters coming up, and he's not exactly going into them as a slouch. I mean, he made the semis in both these tournaments. He lost to two of the best clay core players playing right now, two of the guys who've, along with Djokovic, beaten him the most on clay in the last 10 years or so. So I am not panicked, but he's definitely down probably two notches from where he was last clay season. And considering that he had a lot of health problems in the hardcourt season at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, I'm, I'm wondering if that's... In effect, or maybe the effect of that was to not get as much practice as he usually does, but definitely something seems not what it was last year besides the losses. Have you seen anything in his matches? Like, is, is anything, is, is his game different? Is there, is there any evidence on the court of, of the injuries holding him back? Uh, he seems maybe a step slower on some tough balls, maybe also just slightly more likely than he usually was to not even go for for certain balls that he in the past he would sometimes track down right on the edge of his racket uh but no i I think most of what i'm seeing is is more like is is pretty first of all it's pretty subtle because vanini and team played great matches and already were tough matchups for him um and he, he just seems like slightly more tentative, like staying further back in the court, even though he, he's often stayed very far back. So he's more susceptible to the drop shot. Uh, a couple of times against team in the Barcelona semifinal, he 
uh, he he himself hit drop shots from positions that he normally wouldn't, like pretty far back in the court, team not really in a vulnerable position. Um, and it felt like he was bailing out of the point, which is so weird to see for Nadal on clay. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's probably primarily the injury, but it's, it's hard to know how that affects things that we don't even see on the court. Yeah, I would love to have more detailed um, shot speed and spin data for these matches because I, I do get the sense that he's he's hitting more topspin. Like, going back to the, the earlier days of his career, the criticism was that he would play clay court tennis on a hard court. Like, he would, he would hit the really big spinny forehand or topspin shots. Uh, and that would work on a clay court, but it wouldn't work on hard. And when he's playing someone like Team or Fanini, it doesn't even really work on clay. He has to be more aggressive than that. And, I mean, this is Nadal we're talking about. He got over that a long time ago. He, he's proven he can he can be aggressive when he needs to be. But I think he's fallen back into that a little bit. Uh, and as you point out, maybe he's a step slower. Like in, toward the end of the team match, I, I saw a few instances where he didn't get to balls that looked... I mean, he didn't get his feet set for balls that looked fairly routine. Uh and that's something you can I can never think of Rafa doing just a few years ago. Uh, I mean, his his signature has always been his ability to turn defense into offense and just like lunge out for a shot and hit an incredible passing shot out of it. And he's still getting to some of those balls, but he he's not turning things around. And maybe it's just ten percent or twenty percent difference. Maybe it's something that it's going to be um, he's going to be able to flip that and turn into his old self like like you say it's only only a couple tournaments and he's made it to the semifinals in both but this does feel like what aging should look like like he's gotten a little slower some of the things that used to come naturally to him he's not able to do uh it like i say it could turn around but it would make sense if this were part of a a slight downhill trajectory um do you think he's still the favorite for the french open Yeah, I do. I think it's narrowed, but he's still my favorite. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I you have to see somebody beat him in best of five on clay before you can really believe it's going to happen. And since Robin Soderling is retired, then doesn't leave a lot of options, especially with Djokovic not having not really shown anything yet on clay. Um, what would need to happen for you in Madrid and Rome for Rafa not to be the favorite? I think at this point, the by far the the biggest contender for taking that that mantle going into the French Open is Team, and I think I'd want to see Team win at least one of those tournaments before I'd make him the favorite. But you know, it's all relative, right? Like if Rafa crashes out in the first round of one and withdraws from the other, then strong performances from Team without winning the title would still, I think, make him the clear favorite. Um, and of course, you know, th- those are two big tournaments. So someone we're not even talking about could be the favorite by the end of them. Like if Zverev wins them both con- um, commandingly or wins one and, and makes the final of the other or something. Or, of course, if Djokovic wins one and, and goes deep in the other, then they could be the favorites, too. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that it's it could be one of those French Opens where or excuse me, one of those Grand Slams where we go into it with a favorite who is a favorite by just a whisker and not above 
I don't know, 18% or something to win the, the title. Whereas going into this clay season, we probably have expected Nadal to be in the low to mid thirties to win it. Yeah. I mean, even knowing about Rafa's injury struggles and the fact that he pulled out of Indian Wells, so we haven't seen him too much lately. You just kind of assume he's going to put things together and it, it does take a lot of evidence to the contrary to, to convince you that someone else is the favorite. Now, I want to go back to what you said about Zverev. I, I take your point that if he sweeps the Masters or comes close to sleeping, sweeping these two Masters events, he's going to look a lot better than he does now. But do you really think that if he wins the Rome and Madrid tournaments, will he be the favorite going into a Grand Slam? <laughs> I mean, there's so you're right that there's so much, uh, at least on, on paper, working against him. Um <laughs> I, uh, I I still think it's possible. I mean, first of all, look at what he did on clay last year. So you'd be putting those those two together <laughs> surrounding the the nothing that he served up so far this year. And then you you add to it that he is still by a hair, at least un, until the end of this week, number three in the world. And yeah, I still think, even though he's still not gone past a quarterfinal at a Grand Slam, that he could be the favorite if he wins both Masters. I, I mean, it's, it was a big if. I guess I could probably name a few other people who, if they won both Rome and Madrid, which is almost definitely not going to happen, then they could be the favorite going into the French Open. But Zverev in particular, because of his ranking and his, uh, his performance on clay in the past, and in spite of his very disappointing performances at Grand Slams, I could conceive being maybe not the favorite with betters, but maybe my favorite. So, okay, let's let's take this to not as logical conclusion or logical extreme, but a logical further extreme. Daniel Medvedev has really broken through this clay court season. He made the semis in Monte Carlo. He made the final in Barcelona. He's had some good wins against Djokovic in Monte Carlo and Nishikori in Barcelona. Uh this, I think this really came out of nowhere. I mean, he's been playing really well in the last, I don't know, 32 weeks or so. But he was he was a disaster on clay this year, so no one saw this coming. Um, if Medvedev wins Madrid and Rome, I know it's a big if, but if he wins Madrid and Rome, is he your Roland Garros favorite? <laughs> well, you know, when I was thinking of Nadal in the semifinal losses, something I think I didn't say explicitly is he got beat pretty badly in both matches and that doesn't bode well so even though he he did go deep in both tournaments it's not like he lost seven six in the third and with Medvedev he got beat worse like six one in the seconds in the final set in Monte Carlo and a bagel against team in Barcelona so, so that's not a great sign and and yet you know he beat Djokovic he beat Nishikori if he follows that up with two Masters titles, if, if his ELO continues to climb, his overall ELO ranking is is more impressive now than his clay one, but that would change, I think, with with two Masters titles. Yeah, I could see him being the favorite. I mean, it's a little weird talking about anyone but the... Has Nadal won the French 11 times now? That sounds right, yeah. Anyone but Nadal or Djokovic, who's won the last three majors that have been played, it's strange to talk about anyone else being the favorite. But I think we are talking about players who have done enough that if they sweep 
the two masters, they'd be the favorites. But I mean, let's also, if we're talking about this, talk about the probability of that. I mean, even Nadal sometimes doesn't sweep Madrid and Rome. So the idea of, of him and Djokovic being in the field, I guess you could throw in Federer being in the field for Madrid as, as a small factor. Um, team being a very strong clay player right now. Like for any of these guys to win both, has got to be in the 1% realm, maybe below. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm, and it's my fault for raising the possibility <laughs> in the first place. Well, I guess that, that's sort of, the, sort of the question I'm getting at is, like, as you say, it, it, it's bizarre to think about anybody but but Nadal and Djokovic and probably team as as possible Roland Garros favorites. I mean, those are, those are the three guys right now. And everyone else except for maybe Zverev is way behind them. Um, so if, if let's just say for the sake of argument, if Medvedev is the guy who overcomes the hundred to one odds and sweeps Madrid and Rome, like the question is, do we, do we believe that? I mean, obviously we're not going to disbelieve the fact that he's holding the trophies, but how much weight do we put on it? Do we ascribe it to luck? Do we ascribe it to a, a couple of weeks that he can't repeat? Like if, if someone does pull this off, that, that, that's the question, I guess. Is it, is it a fluke or is it a sign that they're ready to take over the crown and, and they're suddenly the, the favorite in the clubhouse going into this tournament that two other guys have dominated for a long time? Really one other guy, but we'll give Djokovic some credit for um, his dominance as well. And it, I, I feel like I have a really hard time putting too much weight on any outsider, maybe even Zverev. Uh, having that great of a chance at the French Open, even if they do sweep these two Masters events? Well, I, I put a lot of weight in in prior evidence, and I think you do too. And, you know, one of the weird things about this is how much weight to place on best of three versus best of five. So that's a big question with Zverev. And, you know, another one is how much to care about clay versus other surfaces. So the fact that Medvedev has had such a good... Uh, sequence of results on hard courts in like the previous six months before this clay season, that's promising. On the other hand, as you pointed out to me before we recorded, he had a dreadful clay season last year. And in fact, he's okay. So he's eight and two in these two tournaments, Monte Carlo and Barcelona that we're talking about on clay. Uh, Previously in his career, he played 13 matches at tour level on clay, do you already know or do you have a guess as to how many of those he won? I don't know. I Maybe he won two of them. That's it? Yes. That's it. So, yeah. I mean, he could win um, Roman Madrid and still have, like, you know, a 60% winning percentage or 65% winning percentage on clay at tour level. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I think I think you're right that a lot of this is is pretty far-fetched. But I am... I am willing on the basis of how the clay season has started and how some other recent results have gone to see the French Open as a lot more wide open than it's been in recent years. And when we're talking about no favorite having a very high percentage chance, that makes things more volatile. Yeah, definitely. I think I think most people would agree by this point that Nadal is less of a favorite than he's been in a long time. And I guess he could change that by playing very well in Madrid and Rome. We've, we've, we've seen him bounce back from 
early losses like this before. Not very many times, because there haven't been very many of these early losses for him to bounce back from. But it could happen. I mean, if he's the one who sweeps Madrid and Rome, then you kind of have to go back to the default status of Nadal being the overwhelming favorite. But that does seem, certainly seems less likely than it did a couple weeks ago. Uh, I would like to talk more about Medvedev. Uh, we were talking about this before the before we started recording, that the two guys who have beaten him, Leovic and Monte Carlo and team in Barcelona, played a lot of slices. Medvedev struggled quite a bit dealing with low slices, and it, it's it's tough to forget. Medvedev is a really tall guy. I think he's he's six six, so same height as Zverev, and people have raised concerns about Zverev's height as well. Uh, he he doesn't hit with a lot of topspin, so he doesn't have sort of the the defense against low balls that someone like Nadal or Team does. And I'm, uh, it, it's easy to point to the two losses and say these guys beat him, these guys hit a lot of slices. This is the this is the play against Medvedev. Do you think that? it's going to prove to be sort of an Achilles heel. Now Now the tour knows the book on him and he's going to struggle a lot more to keep winning. Well, we talk sometimes about matchups. I was talking about Nadal having two tough matchups that sent him out of Monte Carlo and Barcelona. And part of being able to execute a game plan is having a shot in your arsenal. Like not everyone has a slice that stays low. And on clay... A, a slice that isn't very good can be terrible. It can really sit up. So um, so I don't think he's vulnerable against everybody. And I also think he'll adjust. Like, you know, I'm watching the the loss to team in the Barcelona final, and it's apparent from the results that it's effective or it was effective in that match to hit slice against him. But it's not like it's immediately apparent, like he immediately hits an error he he seems to be doing a lot of the right things. He seems to be taking adjustment steps. Like it seems like he gets to a good spot uh, two dimensionally for the ball, but maybe the three dimensional part, as you point out, of bending down to it is is the challenge. Um, but yeah, I mean it'll it'll be a measure of him and how well he can adjust. Like first of all, is he aware this is happening? We talked about a serve strategy by Caroline Wozniacki in a recent episode and the open question of are people aware it's happening? Like, does he know that he's being sliced a lot more than his opponents usually slice and that it seems to be working? And then if he's aware, is he, you know, does he have the sort of humility or desire or whatever sports cliche you want to to focus on that weakness of his and try to uh, neutralize that tactic and and maybe he's already working on it I mean we don't have these stats for every match he's played and maybe in some of the early rounds guys are trying it and he's he's able to neutralize it more effectively than he was in the losses yeah I I have to imagine that would happen if if only because this is something that you hear about tennis in general and I've heard for as long as I've watched tennis that the way to beat tall guys is to slice them make them make them work against the their physical advantage so so this was this was hardly a secret it's just a lot more open now i mean it was probably the main theme in the commentary throughout the the barcelona final that this is the one thing that team's doing that's really exposing a weakness in medvedev's game so um it wasn't a secret before but it's definitely a more prominent storyline now uh, One thing that really strikes me in in watching the match, it's a tiny sample size, but it's the sort of thing that 
isn't immediately apparent from the amazing charting data that is available because you charted the match and because thousands of matches have been charted by you and your fellow charters. Um, it seems like often the slice is working in the match because he because he can't do anything aggressive against the slice, but he is able to keep the point kind of neutral. And then as soon as he gets a non-slice, he's impatient because he hasn't had that opportunity to be aggressive and goes for something low percentage that he wouldn't have in a different kind of rally, especially because for a big man, he moves very well and, and often is willing to have long rallies, which we've talked about him in the past. So um, that seems like something maybe more correct, correct, correctable than a technical problem where he can't even return the ball. Yeah, and it would be a really dramatic shift, but he, he could deal with the slices in part by coming forward more. Um, at, I think at one point he managed to uh, have a couple of points won at the net against team slices, and I mean, that's going to be tough to generate against a lot of people on clay, those opportunities to come to the net, but I think the as one of the comments that Gilles Mueller made commentating on that match was that the slice works great if, if Medvedev's at the baseline, but slice is not an effective shot against someone who's in position at the net. I mean, you're just, you're just giving them a sitter to swat away. Uh, and it, it didn't work for him in general. I mean, for one thing, team is really, really good. So team wasn't going to give him a lot of opportunities to come in. Team learned very quickly not to go to the slice when he did come in. So it didn't really work, but Against a weaker opponent, that might be enough to, to bridge the gap until Medvedev has some more comprehensive solution for dealing with slices on clay. Um, one player comparison that keeps coming to mind for me with Medvedev is Tomas Burdic, who's also the same height, I think, with within the inch. And also people were saying when he was young that Burdic, he was big, but he moved very well for a big guy didn't necessarily hit really big for a big guy, which also matches Medvedev. Do you think that's a valid, useful comparison, Carl? Yeah, and I kind of a flat hitter. I mean, I do think Medvedev moves better. Um, maybe not up and down, but, but side to side. Like, just has a really impressive knack for a player of any height for taking a ball hit really wide and hitting a ball back that turns the rally back to neutral. Uh, and that's not what I think of with Burdick. But th- there are definitely some some similarities and, and maybe like a similar uh, ceiling. I, I think he also doesn't... Well, I don't know if the stats bear this out. My sense is his serve isn't quite as big. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I think in general Medvedev does not hit as big. But Medvedev's tough to judge in that regard because... On average, like I, I think I, I, when in watching a couple of matches this past week, I was correcting myself because I think I said last week or two weeks ago that Medvedev w- was very aggressive hitting against Djokovic's uh, against Djokovic's backhand. I think I've written something to that effect, and it's it's a bit misleading because many of Medvedev's shots are not aggressive. Like he he will turn himself into Gilles Simon for dozens of shots at a time and I mean he'll he'll be strategically sound but he he won't hit hard ground strokes but then he will just flip a switch and bam he'll hit as hard a backhand as you'll see all day uh, so I think maybe and that's something we've seen with Burdich too I mean Burdich will be pretty passive and then and then sort of 
switch over to an aggressive shot when necessary. But but yeah, on the serve, I don't think Medvedev has the weapon that Burdich does. We could question whether Burdich ever took advantage of the the power that he had at his disposal. That's one reason why I think it's a useful comparison to make, because I mean, being six six confers certain advantages. So if you're going to if you're going to take advantage of that, despite having the the possible weakness in movement, especially up and down, you'd better take full advantage of of the height. And I'm not sure Burdich ever did that. And maybe Medvedev is going down the same road. But I mean, he has plenty of years to improve on that. And judging from his progression on clay since last year, uh, he's willing to and able to make some pretty substantial improvements. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. It makes sense that we're talking about a potential weakness for him, a tactic that works against him and so on. But the big picture is that he's getting into these matches where we're even paying attention to him at many, many tournaments and doing it in a very rapid progression. And that seems like almost entirely a positive sign. I mean, I think he he has had some pretty disappointing results in the, his final match of tournaments, but everybody does. And the match before it that got him there is is the one we don't talk about as much. But, you know, he's winning those late in tournaments to get to that even later match. So, yeah, overall, very, very rapid improvement. So, yeah, you, we've talked about this a number of times when players, their, their improvement gets ahead of their ranking. And, I mean... We're prob- I'm probably repeating what regular listeners have heard me say a dozen times already. The ATP and WTA rankings give equal weight to a 52-week period. So Medvedev is still being held back by the fact that he lost his he lost his four clay matches in this current 52-week period from from last year. So no points from Roland Garros, no points from Madrid or Rome, no points from Estoril, if that matters. Uh, Somehow, in the eyes of the ATP computer, those results are as important as what we've seen him do in the last two weeks, which is is ridiculous if if you're looking at it from a forecasting perspective. So we've got this big gap between the ATP computer, which says he's number 14 in the world, and ELO ratings, which say he's number four behind the big three, which is pretty surprising to me. He's been climbing steadily for the last year or so. I, I wrote something towards the end of 2018 about him breaking into the top 10 in ELO, even though he wasn't yet, maybe even in the top 20 or top 18 or something in in the ATP rankings. And I found that virtually everyone who breaks into the top 10 in ELO eventually makes the top 10 in in the official rankings. And it seems like a foregone conclusion that Medvedev will get there. It's just probably very soon, maybe before the end of the clay court season. But given we've got this gap between 14 and 4, Carl, what do you think we should expect from him on the... ATP computer by the end of this year is he is he top 10 top five what do you think well it's it's really um narrow right now in points between number eight in the ATP rankings and number 15 I mean it's it's a lot less than one master's title so um considering that he has so few points to drop um until I don't know next the fall really like he didn't he won Winston Salem, which is 250, and other than that, just doesn't have a lot of points for that period. Um, I see him sort of in the bottom of the top 10 at the end of the year. Okay, I'll be so a... maybe somewhere between seven and nine. Yeah, I was gonna say seven feels about right, but it's also possible to see him. I don't know. It's so tempting when you see someone on a sharp upward slope like this to 
predict that that slope will continue. And I, I tend to try to correct myself and, and visualize a hiccup instead. So maybe there will be a hiccup. Maybe it'll be these four clay court tournaments. Maybe he won't build on what he did last year. I think he will do more, but, but yeah, seven or eight seems about right to me. Um, do you think he will outperform Kachanov in the long term? Yeah, it's. I mean, they're they're right next to each other in the rankings, and they've been both moving ahead, although in with different rhythms in the last eight months or so. So it's a it's it's a good it's a fun pairing. I mean, they're a few months apart. I think um, I still like Kachanov's game better, but I think Medvedev has shown more uh, more consistency and results across surface. So. I guess recency bias probably is at work, but I'm I'm going to pick Medvedev. What do you think? Yeah, I think I have to pick Medvedev too, um, but it is a tricky one, and it, it gives me a really great segue into one of the WTA topics I want to talk about this week, but I want to hold off on that for just a second. We talked about catching off a little bit in one of the first podcasts this year, and one of our loyal listeners who's a racket expert pointed out that catching off was switching over to to a new racket and maybe that was a cause of his struggles. I've seen people mention that a little more in the last month since he really hasn't done much this year. His ranking is, is quite heavily based on, uh, on the Paris title that he pulled out last year. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, it, he's going to be under more pressure as the, as the year progresses to pick things back up and defend more of these points. So it's t- it's tough to know whether this is just a just another hiccup or whether this is more of what we can expect from him long term. But yeah, the, the the contrast in styles is is really substantial, and I think that until Medvedev's last, until maybe the Tokyo title last year was the was the first time that people would seriously consider Medvedev to be Kachanov's equal. I think Kachanov was the uh, was the one with the, all the potential. Um, the reason that I, I thought this was such a great segue is because there is this contrast between the, the firepower and the steadiness. And I think we tend to, we, we tend to give more credit, maybe too much credit to the players who have the firepower. We see someone like Kachanov who can just reel off aces or service winners and we're attracted to that because we can we can see that turning into Wimbledon, a Wimbledon title or whatever or a big upset a la Nick Kyrgios. Um, but before, before before I explain the, the the parallel on the WTA side, one more question about Medvedev and and, and Kachanov. Let, let's say we set their their current rankings, even their current recent performances equal. Like if you had. If you had two guys who just had two encouraging weeks on clay, both ranked 12 to 14 in the rankings, um, which game style would you prefer going forward if you had to pick one of the two careers? Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I'm thinking of it partly from the perspective of which one can more easily add the other to its um, to its tools, and maybe I'm I'm thinking of what you said about 
Burdick not initially in his career being as powerful as he became. Uh, and this, we often hear about young players being like needing to put on some weight and then they'll be able to hit bigger serves and hit bigger shots. And like, maybe if you, if you've shown you can be steady and, and get all the way to 12 or 13 without the big, uh, easy, easy points, then maybe that's something you can add. But that, that I think also goes against conventional wisdom. Like either are a, a, great server to start or you're not and it's hard to change that much by the time you're in your in your 20s uh anyway for some reason it feels like the steadiness is a better thing to to start out with um another player who comes to mind is someone we we've also talked about recently Borna Chorich and he had the incredible consistency to begin with and then added power or that's at least my subjective impression and that that's a big reason why he is close to the top 10 yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's... I, I, I'm not sure what the conventional wisdom is. Maybe this is a time that we should have had a Twitter poll before we started talking about this, just to get a sense of what people think. I, I, it seems like people really like the power, uh, and and they often wrongly assume, like following your logic, they wrongly assume that if you have the power, you can fill in some of the other gaps. And I've done some work that's not proven, but suggested that it's really hard to fill in those gaps. If you're a bad returner when you're 21, like you're, you're not going to be able to become a decent returner by the time you're in your late 20s. You might get a little better, but generally what you're showing is what you've got. Um, but the same is true to some extent with serves. You're not going to become the next John Isner if you're Daniel Medvedev at age 22 or 23. But but yeah, you can you can add some weight. You can at least learn to use the weapons a little better. I think it's I think it's easier to get more mileage out of a mediocre serve than it is a mediocre return. Uh, I feel like I'm starting to spout things that would be really tough to prove and also increasingly questionable. So maybe I should stop now. But. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it, I was trying to figure out how to measure that. And yeah, it, it would it would be tricky, but it does seem questionable. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm with you on I I take Medvedev over Kachanov at this point, especially with the with the progress on clay. Even if even if we take that out, I think I'd still lean toward the Medvedev side of the equation. But I I don't think that uh, the majority of casual fans would agree with us. If we could somehow find the the group of fans of in the Venn diagram between casual enough not to think as seriously as we are but not so casual that they know a lot about Kachanov and Medvedev I'm not sure how big that intersection is and somehow they're also listening to this yeah I mean maybe they're not maybe we're just making fun <laughs> of them because they're not quite as knowledgeable as we are um I don't, I don't know anything Jeff yeah it's, the more we talk the more we realize we don't know what we're talking about um Okay, the WTA parallel here is it, it comes to mind because of Marketa Vondrusheva, who reached the final, lost to Petra Martic in Istanbul. So not the biggest story of the WTA week, but Vondrusheva is, I think, an, an underappreciated prospect. So she's she's 19, at least for the next little while. And she's the third-ranked teen behind Andreescu and Diana Gastremska. This is her second final of the year. She also made the final in uh, Budapest and came really close to winning that one. And we've talked a lot 
on the podcast, be, partly because I'm obsessed with Arena Sabalenka, that the current crop of young players seems like a bunch of ball bashers um, to a, a pretty extreme extent. So Sabalenka, Gizdremska, and Isimova fits that mold. Um, plenty of these women hit really, really hard, and that's translated into some success as teenagers. And Vondrusova is not like that at all. I mean, she's sort of the the stereotypical crafty lefty, uh, hits with a lot of spin, moves really well, uh, good transition game, good net game, seems to have a lot of, of court smarts, uh, very good in doubles. She's had some great results in doubles as well. And I mean, partly because she hasn't had a big result like, um, like Sabalenka has, but partly I think because the game isn't as eye-popping, she hasn't gotten the same attention as some of these other girls. And I'm not sure that's fair. I think she, she might have a lot more potential than that. Do you think that this, like, uh, if we were to translate this, let's say the Medvedev, Kachanov distinction to Vondrusheva Yastremska, let's say, uh, do you think that the same argument holds for women that as we were sort of laying out for the men? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some maybe small differences, like the just fewer women have serves that are are major factors certainly some of the um younger powerful aggressive women on tour do like sabalenka and osaka for including her in in that age group um but yeah like it's you're you're gonna you're not gonna have players winning like 20 percent of their of their serve points on aces or 15 percent particularly but this yeah i think the same general uh breakdown applies in the same general progression and it's all explained by sabalenka slump clearly that that <laughs> shows that we should be looking at the other group more favorably yeah i mean, I mean we're we're all speculating and and it, it really sets up the best of these of these speculations lead to jeff getting frustrated with the fact that we don't have the actual answer and trying to answer it using his data, but this would this would be a hard one to sort of categorize going back very far on the WTA side, right? Yeah, and for the ATP too, but the WTA especially because we don't even have match stats for them. Um, yeah, and we've talked about it enough that I I have thought about how to attack this problem, and I'm I'm not sure it can be done uh, with the with the existing data because I'd love to be able to look at say. 18 year olds, 19 year olds, and, and see if, um, see if players who are very aggressive or very not aggressive, uh, go on to have better careers. But, but yeah, we just don't have data on very many players. So the the level of approximation we'd have to make would be, would be so great that it would make the results not very worthwhile, maybe totally worthless. With men, at least we could look at at ace rate and get a sense of big server progressions versus not big server progressions. Uh, we don't even have that luxury with women. Maybe in maybe in another five years, we will have match stats going back more than a decade. So we can start doing that same sort of thing. We'll also have match starting projects data going back uh, more than a decade. So we'll be in a better position to do that. But yeah, until then, we'll be stuck with, with people like us just mindlessly speculating. I mean, just to give an idea of how quickly this data is accumulating because of the charting project, you've got 16 charted matches for Van Drusova before her 20th birthday, and you can start to see like 
her she has many more points of 10 or more shots than the the average WTA um, match. So, you know, that's that's an insight that is, wouldn't be available anyway from the match stats and gives you some idea of like shot tolerance and aggression. Yeah, it does. And yeah, the question is just what that means for her in five years or 10 years. Right. I mean, you're, you're setting up yourself for future analysts to be able to answer this question that's impossible to answer right now. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be an exciting late 2020s in tennis analytics. I can sense it already. Um, so Von Druzeva was, like I said, was the finalist in, in Istanbul. Petra Martic won her first career title there. The other bigger WTA event was in Stuttgart. Uh, Petra Kvitova won that one, knocking out Annette Kontavite. Kontavite, um, unfortunately, Kontavite couldn't pull out the win because had she won, it would have kept the WTA streak alive of, of no multi-title winners. I think it would have been 22 or something like that. Uh, but Kvitova had won already, so we now have a, a woman who's won two titles this year. Um who broke that streak on the in the ATP? Federer. Oh, right, Miami. And now, now team has as well. And and side note on team, I, I keep forgetting, forgetting to look this up, but I have to imagine he's one of very few players to beat Federer on hard courts and Nadal on clay in the same season. Oh yeah, especially if you cut off the season at at uh, May 1st, as we could do in team's case. So I guess we'll beat Djokovic in the semis at Wimbledon and Federer in the final. Probably. Yep. Speaking of sound forecasts. Um, so with, with, so Simona missed this tournament due to injury uh, as she fell during her Fed Cup match against Caroline Garcia. So she wasn't there in, in Stuttgart. Osaka was there. Osaka won a couple of matches and then pulled out of the semifinals due to injury. Uh, so Osaka remains number one. Uh, Kvitova is, I think, in there at number two, and then Simone at number three. Uh, it's just one tournament, and the surface is a little different than it is at Roland Garros because the clay's a little faster and it's indoors. But this is this is one nice win, at least for Kvitova, because... Kontavite was the player who beat her at Roland Garros last year. Um, Kvito also knocked out Kiki Burtons in the semifinals here in Stuttgart. Uh, do you think we should start talking about Kvitova as a possible French Open favorite? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was talking about looking at last year's results too, especially at this point in the clay season. And other than that two tiebreaker loss to Kontavite in the French Open, um, you know, she had won her what is it, 10, 11 matches coming into the 11 match, last 11 matches on clay coming into the French, including against Burton's Pliskova, uh, Kasekina and her, her last three in Madrid. So she was, she was, I think we probably talked about her as a favorite going into the French Open last year. And here she has a pretty impressive uh, run to the title in her first clay tournament this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's never really, you know, gone that far at the French Open. Well, that's not true. She made the semis in, in 2012, but it's been a while. Um, but she's had great results at other clay tournaments. And unlike our discussion of Zverev, uh, there isn't an issue of best of three, best of five here. So there's no reason she couldn't do well in Paris. Uh, yeah, I think she's one of the favorites now. 
Would you put her ahead of Simona? No. Thank you. <laughs> it was almost... uh, but, you know, how bad is the injury? I don't know. I don't think it's that bad. It, I mean, it, she stood back up and and finished winning a match against Garcia. So I, I, I didn't read a lot about it, but I think it's mostly precautionary. And she'd also, it, it might be even more than that, or even more, even less, even less severe, I guess. Uh, she played a lot of tennis in the, the two matches uh, of the Fed Cup weekend against France, especially that match against Caroline Garcia. So it, it could just be that she she took the excuse to get some extra rest from a non-mandatory event. So I don't think it's serious at all. Yeah, I mean, I think Halep remains the French Open favorite. All right, good answer. An irreparable breach in the Tennis Abstract podcast hosting team has been avoided so well it was sabalenka this the co-favorite thank you even better no i i I can be realistic i i I know she's not the favorite until next year or wimbledon or the u.s open um i i know that her reign will not start just yet so speaking of irreparable breaches that sounds like a horrible attempted upon which it wasn't but I promised we were going to talk about Justin Gimmelstab. We've got about 15 minutes left in our, our time, and that seems like a, a good limit to put on discussion of Justin Gimmelstab. So let me give a quick rundown for those lucky ones among you who haven't been following the Gimmelstab news. Um, Justin Gimmelstab, former ATP player, I think he won a mixed double slam or two. Um, pretty busy guy among the tennis world. He's the America's representative on the the ATP board. He's a frequent commentator on Tennis Channel in the US and he also owns or co-owns a production company that does some work for Tennis Channel among others. And he doesn't have the best reputation. He he's said some Wait, he's also a coach, yeah? Yes. He has coached Isner is I I think maybe they put that on hold when he's dealt with his legal stuff, but I'm not sure what the status is with Gimmelstab and Isner, but yes, he has been Isner's coach. Uh, so he said some sexist stuff in the past. There's been some hints of, of violent, violent encounters. I think there was a, like some pickleball tournament or something where, where he threatened his opponent. I don't, don't remember the full story on that one. Um, but the big story is Halloween. He, attacked this guy on the street who was a friend of his ex-wife's, I think. Um, he finally had his day in court. He pleaded no contest, and he was he was sentenced. Couldn't think of the word sentence for some reason. He was sentenced to three years of probation, a whole bunch of community service, and anger management classes. So he ba- didn't technically plead guilty, but basically he's, he, he's accepted that he's guilty of these charges. Uh, and... In addition to this punishment, all sorts of people are, are calling for him to be removed from the ATP board, to be taken off the tennis channel, for the tennis channel not to, not to, um, not to work with his production company and so on. Basically, feel, people feel like he should be punished more than he's been punished already. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of things we can talk about. Carl and I have been emailing back and forth about this and exploring a whole lot of possible avenues of discussion here, but I mean, Carl, what's what's your what's your general take on like why 
Well, let's start. Let's start with the actual question. I tend to jump to the meta questions because they're more interesting to me. But let's start with the actual question. Do you think that that Gimmelstab's off-court behavior, in this case anyway, off-court behavior, should affect his standing within tennis? Yes. And that means removing him from the ATP board? Well, I mean, I get, like, if the question is, were I, did I, were I to have that decision, would I do that? Yes. Uh, I don't think there should be some sort of clause that forces the ATP to do that. I think there's a mechanism for doing it. And the people who will have that decision get to decide. And I think the the, the best decision they can make for the ATP would be to remove him. And that's because because it's a distraction or like what what's the reasoning behind behind this being what makes him not qualified or not the best choice for this job well i think temperament is important for the job uh so i you know i think some of it is about like qualifications and and characteristics ability to be good at the job and then a big part of it is I don't know if, if I would call this a distraction, but that it reflects poorly on the ATP and the people deciding who serve on the board if they select someone who has this track record. So d- does that extend to Gimelsab's other roles in tennis? Like, maybe we can talk about the coaching, the commentating, the being involved in production. Like, would you count yourselves among the people who just want him gone? I don't know. I mean, it's different people deciding for different reasons in all those cases. And there is no czar of tennis. And if there were, it would be a good argument maybe against the czar if someone could just like ban someone who didn't violate anything specific. But it is worth pointing out that some of his transgressions, if that's what we're going to call them, or some of his his record that people don't like is pretty tennis related. Like the the sexist comments were about WTA players uh, and they were pretty terrible and they weren't like, not that this would be so much better, but they weren't just offhand comments that happened to be overheard. He was speaking on a radio station. So, you know, it it shows something about judgment and what he's willing to say that might reflect what he's willing to say in a very public forum that might reflect on, on tennis and what tennis is willing to tolerate. Uh, And then, you know, one of his previous alleged violent incidents was at a paddle tennis tournament. You said pickleball, same idea. Um, And I guess it wasn't televised or anything, but he is a pretty public figure. And there were lots of people who knew who he was and what his role was in tennis who reported back on his like violent threats and homophobic slur. There's just an accumulated evidence that he uh, will continue, could continue to reflect poorly on the sport already has, and also has, uh, temperament that isn't ideal for any of the jobs we're, we're talking about. Um, you know, the, there's also mechanisms in place to remove someone temporarily and have some kind of way of deciding like, okay, are they, are they capable now of, of taking back the role they had and, um, and serving it, serving it better than they were before. So, uh, I don't think everything has to be permanent, but right now from what he's done recently, and in the past, he doesn't he doesn't reflect well on any of those those jobs. But I think the coaching one is the hardest one because that's a 
a one-to-one relationship and it, if he works really well with a player it, it would be I don't even think it would make sense to have a system where they couldn't work together privately I think then there would just be a question of do tournaments want him in the in the boxes being on on camera all the time yeah and Wimbledon has already made a decision on that he's I'm not sure whether banned is the right word, but he's not invited, I guess, to to Wimbledon. I, I forget the exact terms of that of that deal, but we've seen it in the in the past. I think uh, I think Ilya Nastasi was previously banned from. Again, I don't remember whether he's like banned from the grounds or just banned from sitting in in the the special boxes or whatever. Um, but that does does raise the issue that like I think you're right that there's no particular reason why someone with Gimelsop's history shouldn't be allowed to be a coach or to put it differently, why a player shouldn't be allowed to pick someone who they think is a good coach, um, despite these issues. But then that it could be a real problem for that relationship. If suddenly tournaments start banning that guy from showing up, I mean, it's certainly beneficial to have your coach on the grounds with you. Um, I, 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 agree with you up to that point that that players should be allowed to continue to have coaching relationships with with someone in a situation like this do you think that do you think that there should be a limit on what tournaments should be could be able to do i mean it, it, i guess it, it if a if a player has has chosen to vouch for a certain guy as a coach and and i don't know that he's whatever he's been convicted of he's he's been punished for for all for it already i mean do you think that maybe Wimbledon has gone too far or people are asking for the U.S. the U.S. Open to do the same would be going too far to just exclude him from the event entirely? Well, so again, I think that there's a difference between temporary and permanent and that there are things that he could do that might signal, you know, some real um, remorse and awareness of what he's done that that could ameliorate things over time so i understand why people are calling for it for tournaments that are coming up right away um i mean it's a form of a, a punishment with a with a fixed term uh I'm, I'm thinking you know i think the idea of like short temper and violence uh have re- very real histories within tennis that i also think make it understandable uh why tournaments would would consider that kind of measure because, you know, we've had tennis parents who are also coaches, um, threatened to do or do violent things. And that just has no place in the game. So I think he's, he's shown the short fuse. He's, he's shown like that he would actually carry out something that he pled no contest to, which to me means that it happened. Um, and that's, that's a concern. I'm curious though, like what exactly we're talking about, because there's such a spectrum of what could be done. Like you could say, you're not welcome anymore in the legends tournament. And based on his record as a player, as you briefly recounted, like he probably never belonged in the legends tournament. They could say, you don't get a credential of any kind, or they could say you're not allowed on the grounds. Are you saying Wimbledon said, we're going to keep you from the grounds if you get a ticket? I don't think so. I don't remember what the exact parameters of that were. I mean, to me, those are pretty different kinds of bans. Yeah, they are. And and your point about about parents is a really good one. There, I think there have been instances where parents have been banned from tournaments, and in at least in some of those cases, for good reasons. 
so there is a precedent for that. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I guess what, what, what my uneasiness with the whole thing stems from is, like, as you point out, there's no czar of tennis, nothing even close. So, so really, in, in Gimmelstab's case, there's a lot of micro decisions being made. I mean, the big one in the news right now is the ATP board election. And now Brad Gilbert is involved. So the ATP board will probably have more nicknames and fewer Justin Gimmelstabs in the near future. But there's all these other issues, like every tournament that he might want to go to has to make a decision about where he can sit, if he can come. Um, the Tennis Channel has to make a decision about whether he's going to commentate, when he might be able to come back, if they should do any business with this production company. And none, maybe not none, most of these tournaments don't have any, any standard, uh, any standard system to follow. Like, uh, if a parent starts attacking another parent, then I'm guessing that it, that falls pretty clearly afoul of, of a rule. And you kick that person out and keep them out for a long time. But almost all these decisions in Gimelsab's case are being made on a, a, an individual basis. And I guess it just, it, it, it's not clear to me exactly what people are objecting to. Like, I understand all the reasons that Gimelsab is objectionable. And you make a good point that the, the fact that he's shown the predilection to violence is something to be concerned about. Um, but I guess I wish there were clearer policies that, that governed what all these institutions were doing. Because um, it is going to have a pretty severe effect on this guy's life. Maybe he deserves it, but I mean, we have to take into account that, I mean, he would, he's best qualified of all the things he could possibly do to work in tennis. He's pretty good at some aspects of them, even if many of us don't like him. Um, and maybe some of these institutions would follow what you're suggesting, Carl, and wait for him to show some remorse. And maybe in a year he'll be, he'll be given opportunities to come back into the game. But there is this this mob justice element that we're seeing now where where everyone's working so hard to prove that they're they're doing the right thing regarding this guy that he's going to end up being blackballed and that seems that seems excessive for someone who's also being punished by the legal system well i mean we can look at all of employment and uh, all kinds of jobs where people face repercussions for things that, I mean, there, there are people who basically can't get any job with a pay above like the minimum level in the U S because they've been convicted of a crime. Yeah. Which uh, I think is, is ridiculous. That's a horrible it is, thing. It absolutely is ridiculous. I guess I'm just saying like in this case, it's, um, <sighs> As much as I think tennis can be a mess for having so many different governing bodies and so many different events with different leaders and policies that differ from from place to place, like I don't know how you would write a uniform policy that would sort of cover what you want to cover and not cover what you don't. I, if if the decisions are being made purely on the basis of um, public pressure then yeah, that's, that sucks. Um, you know, I, I think there's so many decisions that end up getting made in tennis that are ad hoc and individual to tournaments that we don't like, and that aren't just like wild cards we've talked about, obviously something with less repercussions, but they do have real repercussions on people's abilities to make a good livelihood in tennis. So I like the idea of coming up with something that, that is uniform, that a tournament can point to and say, Hey, we all agreed to this. 
and we're not just going to um, we're not just going to deviate from it because a lot of people are calling for someone's head. Um, I just I can understand why no one's come up with that because it, it hurts my head to think of how you would, where you would draw the line and how you would define your terms. Yeah, it's certainly a problem. I did a little research into things like this for a hockey article that I was writing, and I was the NHL has no. I think they still have no official policy on. Uh, I think it was specific to sexual violence, and the other major team sports at least have written policies, like baseball, football, uh, and and basketball have set policies. The NHL. Tr- will I mean they react if someone is accused of of hitting their wife or something um and there's some kind of hearing there's 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 a process but it's not as as set in stone but it, it seems like it's it, it, one of the main complaints about the NHL not having that in place is it is partly just optics um like maybe the NHL arrives at the right decisions in these cases on this individual basis, but I think everyone would feel a lot more confident in the process if it was, if it was more official, if there was a, a, an established step-by-step system that offenders went through. And, and you're right. It, it's really, really hard to draw the line. I mean, in the cases I'm talking about, they're specific to sexual violence. Uh, Gimel Shab is possibly sexist and definitely violent. So he doesn't, he, he sort of, is on the edge of that, but wouldn't fall into that category. So I'm not sure how it would be treated, but I guess that's what makes me un- uneasy about it, that a l- there's a lot of of technically unrelated, but decisions that are influencing each other just by the fact that they're they're in the news and the, the, the news just sort of feeds on itself in a case like this. Um, it would It would make me feel a lot better about the process if there was one official decision if anything extra legal has to be done at all um if if it were if it were the one one established process even if it did have to to um fight its way through the mess of exactly where to draw the line on something like this and tennis is a long long way from having something like that yeah i mean i think the the international nature of it makes it tough you know like we're, we're saying the justice system has kicked in or whatever but what does that mean across over a hundred countries? Um, and then I think also just the, um, the factors that, that even courts of law take into account, like, um, you know, Gimel Stubb was basically denying it until he pled and, and insisting that it hadn't happened. And, you know, so that's taking someone who now appears to have been, a victim of a horrible, violent crime and, and, and making them suffer through months of being publicly called a liar. Um, so like figuring out how to sort of factor all of those things in. And, and then there's the fact that, yeah, I mean, I think that people were probably incorrectly bundling together lots of things that had happened in his career that he had done in his career in with this. And they were because, there are a lot of people in tennis who seem to not care that he said sexist things in a public setting and were willing to let it slide. So it's like, okay, well now we actually have a chance to get this guy for something we didn't get him for when, when we should have. So that, that, that I agree. That's not a very effective, uh, it's not a system you would want to see scale. Um, and 
yet I think about the NFL and it does have a policy. And then when the commissioner does sort of deviate from that or when people realize, wow, there's like an actual number we attach to to beating your spouse. And that, that seems really callous. Like it, 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 there's no easy answer here, but you're right. There may be much better ones than what tennis has right now. And what's the alternative to attaching a number to it? Isn't that what you, I do, agree. Wasn't that what you do when you sentence someone to jail or to a, a fine? Yeah, and there are all sorts of sentencing guidelines. Um, okay, we're over the 60-minute mark. We could have a lot more to say about this. I just have one one more topic. And I saw a tweet from, I think it was Howard Bryant a, a, a few days ago, that he was complaining that there wasn't enough coverage of this, the Tennis Channel wasn't talking about it. I don't watch Tennis Channel. I can't watch Tennis Channel, actually, from outside the U.S. I don't know whether they're mentioning it at all or acknowledging the, the glaring lack of Justin Gimmelstab in their coverage these days. But... Um, to me, it seems like there's plenty of coverage on this. It seems like the, I mean, the, the New York Times is, is on it. All the British papers are, are covering it. They're focusing mostly on the ATP board election part of it. But I mean, it's, it's nothing's being hidden, I don't think, from the public eye. I mean, do, do you get a sense, Carl, that, that I mean, do you think there's not enough coverage of this? So I think there's a, you can say that there's a specific criticism here and then there's an even more specific one. And the specific one is we're talking about the tennis world and how insular it is and how interconnected it is and how many people who might be deciding how much Tennis Channel covers this story might also have some kind of personal or business or both relationship with Gimel stuff. Well, in whereas this case, a lot of them do. I mean, they're yeah, really tight. Yeah. Whereas with the New York Times or the Daily Telegraph, that's just not going to be the same issue. So I think it's it's fair to say that it could it could be possible both that this is being covered very well and extensively by journalistic outlets and also that to the extent that people in tennis control media outlets they are trying to not talk about the story both things could be true is um, there is there much value in controlling a media outlet if it's one of so many like in, in terms well, of well for the hard so like there are a lot of people at the new york times there are a lot of new york times readers who now are aware that Gimelstub exists and they know what's going on and that and that's important. Uh, among like hardcore tennis fans, I think it does matter if the tennis, if like those outlets that they consume are not talking about the story. So you, you think, I'm not sure I totally understand that, that fan, fans who know about it would be concerned if Tennis Channel isn't talking about it? No, I'm saying that Tennis Channel and other tennis media outlets control a really big chunk of the attention share of tennis fans. And so they do have a lot of influence on how, how many are aware of what's going on. Okay. That, that, that's fair. And I guess I wonder how much do you think that matters? Like to me, I could, I could happily go the rest of my tennis watching and tennis fandom days without thinking about Justin Gimelsop ever again. Uh, I'm assuming most fans are pretty much the same way since he's retired and I wouldn't have known who the America's representative was on the ATP board if it weren't because he was in the news for these non-ATP board related reasons. Um, So do you think that the average tennis fan who's watching Tennis Channel in order to watch tennis and keep up with what the tennis celebrities are up to, like, do you think it matters to them what is happening right now with Gimmelstab? No, I think this is a much more of a like adding to a longer term argument about how conflicted the tennis world is and trying to get uh, 
more um, less of that conflict and more of that acknowledgement of conflict rather than specifically that, uh, you know, getting Tennis Channel to cover the story more would have a big impact on this story specifically. Okay. So the, can this, so you think that the, the original complaint I'm talking about is more about the conflict of interest issues than lack of exposure of Yemelstab? Yeah, exactly. I think it's like, look how glaring this is that this really big tennis story isn't being talked about, yet more evidence of just how um, hopelessly conflicted so much of the tennis establishment is. And we've we've both done our share of complaining about that, I think, probably more me than than you. Um, but there, there's, there's plenty of other instances of that. Tennis is a small world. Most people have multiple jobs from multiple... In, in multiple types of roles. So you have coaches who are broadcasters, broadcasters who are running production companies and so Tennis on. And so podcasters who are doing marketing for Sabalenka. Yeah, I did. I really should be acknowledging all the money I'm making marketing Sabalenka. Um, excellent example. Given that for the vast, vast, vast majority of tennis fans, it's, it's just entertainment. Um, maybe not even a primary source of entertainment. Do you think that matters very much to most tennis fans? The, conflict of interest in the background? I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of our exposure to tennis fans is on Twitter, and I think that's probably not representative or even close to what most tennis fans are thinking, uh, as much as I love tennis Twitter. So... Do you really? Yeah, maybe... <laughs> I... Another another, another episode, we can talk about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's... It's not near like for a Nadal fan. It if how Nadal does at French Open is one, and how he does at Wimbledon is two, and so on. Then then this probably ranks like twenty seventh on a list, or maybe you know way lower than that. Um, but people do start to care more when it affects their favorite player or tournament or whatever in in a negative way. So I think not that many people are thinking about it all the time, but are aware of the occasional negative consequences. Yeah, I guess that, that that's a good point. That and that's that's the main, really the main issue with sports governance in general. I mean, the bigger story right now is is doping in athletics, and the, the concern there isn't isn't like who's being bribed by who. The concern is when I tuned in to watch the London Marathon yesterday, are the winners clean? I mean, that's what really matters is what I'm watching, what I think I'm watching, and ninety nine percent of the time the tennis you're watching on tennis channel or Eurosport or wherever it, it is what you think it is, but we get concerned if, you know, maybe Federer is getting, is, is getting advantageous treatment from scheduling or some players possibly doping or betting on the match or something like that. And governance is there to, to plug that hole to sort of reassure us that we're watching something that's fair. And, and I guess the conflicts, that's the concern with conflicts of interest is just, knowing that the process to keep it fair isn't being, isn't, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for, even though it's probably an easy one. Um, subverted? Sure. I'll take subverted. Yeah. Um, that the integrity of the process is maintained. We'll say that. Um, and you've got to go a few steps to get from, from that concern to caring a lot about what's happening to Justin Gimmelstab and how. But there is a link, and I think maybe the people who care a lot are, they, they've followed the steps of that chain in the years of their tennis fandom, and they see the connection. Um, or maybe they just really hate Justin Gimmelstab. Both are possibilities. 
So we're well past the 60 minute mark. Anything we should touch on before we call it quits, Carl? Uh, well, maybe we should also fix the um, employment and justice system in the U.S., but we could save that for another episode. Yeah, it might. We, we'll do that as the opening segment of our next episode. It's all 250s and internationals this week, so not as much important tennis to talk about. So, okay. Having covered all of that, thank you as always, Carl. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you did stick around through the Gimmelstop discussion, and probably a week from now, we'll have another episode for you. See you then.